0: I wondered if you could please speak with us about how you first met Marcel Duchamp and the impact that that initial meeting had on you.
1: Okay, I've told this story before, so if anybody's heard it, you can... I can go out for a walk. But uh, <laughs> uh, But in uh, in 1959, I was, I was writing on the foreign news desk at Newsweek magazine. Uh, Newsweek and Time did not have... Uh, 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 did not have art coverage in those days. There was no art department, no art writer. But Newsweek had an art researcher who would occasionally come up with a story that the editors would consider important enough to run. And in 59, uh, uh, the uh, the first major monograph on Duchamp and his work uh, came out, was published in English and French simultaneously. And I got the call to go and interview him. And of course, I knew practically nothing about him. I had about an hour and a half to look at the at the um, an early copy of of the monograph. Uh, so I, I sort of skimmed through that, and then went to meet the great man at uh, the King Cole Bar of the St Regis Hotel. And. Uh, and, of course, the questions I had for him were very dumb.
0: <laughs> That's hard to believe. They were
1: very dumb and very obvious. As such as. And, and the thing that really got me as a young journalist was that he managed, in some miraculous way, to turn every question into something interesting. Of, of, for example, at, at the time, we all thought that he had... Stopped making art decades before, so I said the usual question: What? How do you occupy your time now that you don't make art anymore? And he said, "Oh, I'm a breather, a respirateur." <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that enough? <laughs> and and so we discussed that for a little bit, and then we went on from one question to another, and everything that I that I said, he turned into something. Mm marvelous. And I, and as, as I say, as a young journalist I just thought that was unheard of and unprecedented and I'd never met anybody like this before. And so after the interview I, I did go back and I read the book in its entirety and I got more and more fascinated and when I went to the New Yorker a couple of years later I started about writing a profile about him and then I've been writing about him ever since.
0: Right, and one of the things um, that I know you've, you've noted in, in retrospect in thinking about your intersection with Duchamp is although he never presumed to teach anyone, I continue to learn from Duchamp today. I wondered if you could elaborate on the lessons that you've learned from Duchamp and how your own writing maybe has contributed to your, the lessons that mm. you've learned.
1: Uh, of course, he was not... Um he was not a preacher or a teacher in the formal sense. Uh, I would say he taught uh, by the Zen method of not teaching. But um, there were things that you got from Dushan sort of in the air almost. One is that art is not as important as life. And, uh, you know, a lot of art writers uh, fall into the trap of thinking... That art is the most important thing. Uh, that is how we define ourselves in the world, and it's what remains of us when we're gone. And Duchamp knew better. He um, he believed that that life was what mattered, and and he led his own life in such a way that uh, that art was part of it, but not the whole of it. He 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 just. Um, Uh, He he just lived in the world in the most comfortable and astonishingly free way. I've never met anyone who used his freedom more efficiently and more beautifully than Marcel. I think also I learned from him primarily that the um, process of art making is uh, extremely complex Mm -hmm as is composed of many, many different uh, variables, uh, some of them accidental, most of them unplanned, and um, uh, that um, it cannot really be uh, be thought out, and that anybody who claims that they know what art really is doesn't have a clue.
0: It might come as a surprise to some members of the audience, and it certainly intrigues me, that Marcel Duchamp, who has a reputation for being quite intellectual and esoteric, actually had the impact of drawing you in and enlightening you and making the art world an intriguing place.
1: Yeah, well, he he was so um, easy. He was so easy, approachable. Mm -hmm. He could talk to anybody on any level, as I found in that first interview. And uh, he, he made life delightful for everyone around him just without seeming to make any effort whatsoever. Uh, that there just was never any problem with Dushan. Mm-hmm. He it was part of his charm that that um, it was so effortless. Mm-hmm. He, uh, uh, he, he, that there was a sort of of, of a lightness of, of touch about him, a lightness in every way. He traveled light in the world. As a matter of fact, when he and Antini uh, got invited for weekends in the 50s and the the 60s, he never took a suitcase. He would would wear two shirts, one on top of the other, and put a toothbrush in his pocket, (laughs) and that was it.
0: And to my mind, part of, part of his lightness of touch was his tremendous sense of humor. And I recall that, I guess maybe as early as the mid-40s, he told Harriet and Sidney Janice that he loved to contradict himself. Yes. And, of course, we know now that um, even during Duchamp's lifetime, we only know, knew a portion of the real Duchamp. Mm-hmm. So I was curious if you could tell us about how you approached the challenge of writing about Duchamp, who himself professed a word, uh, professed a discomfort with explanations. <laughs>
1: yeah, Dushan said, I've, have, have, I've learned to contradict myself in order to avoid conforming to my own tastes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the thing you learned about Dushan right away was that anything that you might say about him, mm-hmm. you had to realize that the opposite was probably also true he was so full of surprises you can never really predict but, um, uh, and, uh, I, I, but the question of how I, I, I went about writing mm-hmm. about him I really had no m- method or goal, I just was so fascinated by the man himself that I wanted to see if I could get some of that quality on, on paper mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, you know, Duchamp can be a black hole for a certain sort of obsessive scholar. There are lots of art historians, not lots, but a few art historians who have fallen into this, have have devoted large parts of their lives to proving some complicated, comprehensive theory about what's the secret of Duchamp and his work, and it just doesn't work. I mean, there was an, an artist who quit making art for several years in order to prove to his own satisfaction with thousands of pages of proof that everything that Dusha had done and said at the time he was working on the large glass came from the writings of Alfred Jarry. Mm. And it was true that Dusha had uh, enjoyed Jarry, but it was not true that. He got all of his his thinking out of, from that one source, or from any one source. Mm-hmm. It mostly came out of himself.
0: As a as a historian, uh, one of the comments that Duchamp made about the process of writing history and telling stories um, really tickles me. And this is a remark that he made in 1966 to the critic Pierre Caban, and he said. The idea of a great star comes directly from a sort of inflation of small anecdotes. The entire thing is based on a made-up history. I was curious how you selected the anecdotes the anecdotes that you did to emphasize in telling your story about this great legend and what, what, how you determined what you ought to emphasize and whether your sense of what ought to be emphasized about Duchamp evolved over time as you um, developed writings on him in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and up to the present.
1: I don't know if there was, if there was really that, that much of a, of a selection process. I mean, you get immersed in Duchamp and, um, and uh, there are... Innumerable anecdotes, innumerable stories uh, uh, most of them apocryphal um, uh, uh, but I think it was uh, it was really the um i think I took as an example his own uh, his own quality of demystification mm-hmm. i mean he really demystified art he he didn't he didn't have any sympathy for, for people who th- who thought it was a kind of religion. In fact, he said art as a religion is not even as good as God. And he um, uh, uh, he was that way in in matters of, of non art as well. I mean, he he was very practical. He, he was very low key. Uh, and 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 this business of of living lightly, I think uh, 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 this was enormously impressive to me
2: mm-hmm.
1: i I wanted to uh, be able to follow it in my own life and was of course never able to uh,
0: uh,
1: but as I say, it wasn't really much of a selection process; mm-hmm. it was just sort of of Uh, uh, of talking to him. I talked to him quite a lot Mm -hmm. for um, a period when I was doing the profile and then later uh, for for the Time Life book. But um, uh, uh, but it was really just a a, a question really of letting things Mm -hmm. fall into place Mm -hmm. and trying, as I say, uh, uh, to bring that sense of Duchamp the man as opposed to uh, Duchamp, the mystical genius.
0: Right, right. Well, We've talked a little bit already about um, the, the sort of um, Duchamp's love of contradiction and mystery and even mm-hmm. concealment. And of course, um, part of, I think, what makes, um, makes your perspective on Duchamp so important is that you knew him um, both before and after um, his final work, Et donné mm-hmm. or Given, first The Waterfall, second The Illuminating Gas, was unveiled posthumously in 1969. How did you address the challenge of writing about an artist who arguably left perhaps the best for last and didn't even let those people who knew him during his own lifetime in on the secret?
1: Yeah, well, of course, I didn't. I didn't have any idea about Eton Dunois at, at the time I was doing the profile or, or the Time Life book, um, uh, and uh, uh, and practically n- nobody else did either. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, uh, but uh, uh, you know, it was. Uh, and, but it was already. Clear by the, by the uh, of the nineteen sixties that Duchamp had not quit making art. The, uh, uh, th- things kept appearing: S- uh, small erotic sculptures, a drawing here and there, um, and then th- the whole series of um, replicas of the ready maids. Um, uh, th- and so the um, uh, the problem of of, of, of dealing with him was uh, was um, was an ongoing one. You could never f- uh, uh, feel that you had the final word on mm-hmm. anything and you just w- w- would try to get as much of what was out there as, as you could and, and duchamp i must say was very cooperative he um he, you know he had had never um, courted publicity mm-hmm. uh, he, he, the, the, uh, uh, there were some interviews, but he you know he didn 't go out of his way to uh, uh, to, uh, to seek publicity of any kind and his His cooperation was was sort of along the lines of, of he was willing to sit down and talk for a while and then that would be enough and um, and uh, maybe we could meet another day uh, uh but uh, uh, but he, uh, he was he 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 was this strange combination of being extremely comfortable but somewhat remote. Mm-hmm. You you couldn't really get close to him at least mm-hmm. I couldn't get really close. Mm-hmm. And I think very f- uh, very few others did.
0: Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's worth just saying a, a word quickly about etondone which is um, shown here in this slide it's not a piece that you'll find on view upstairs. It's installed permanently at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and, in fact, will be the subject of an, of an exhibition opening in August at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in honor of the 40th anniversary of its unveiling. And it's this wonderful, mysterious piece. One approaches the wooden door that you see on the left. There are two little peepholes. Um, I think I have a little laser pointer, which I believe are located here, and the landscape beyond is is rather shocking and certainly quite intriguing. And so long along those lines, um, given given the uh, the uh, power of this work, I'm just curious how you felt when you first learned that it existed.
1: Well, I was I was just delighted, and one of the things that delighted me the most was that was to learn that. Um, Uh, Arturo Schwartz, the Italian art historian who had been working for years on the definitive, it was called The Complete Works of Marcel Duchamp, the definitive catalogue raisonné. Duchamp hadn't told him about this work. (laughs) He found out about it as his book was finally going to press. In fact, it had gone to press. He got on the first plane from Milan to, to Philadelphia and spent... Few hours in front of the work of the work, and then furiously wrote a page and a half uh, essay and was able to get it inserted mm-hmm. into this second printing. But uh, I just thought it was so typical of Marcel <laughs> that he wouldn't have told him.
0: Right. And, of course, you had published, um, by the time this was unveiled, yeah, yeah. a wonderful profile in The New Yorker, very detailed, yeah, in 1965. Yeah. And you'd published The World of Marcel Duchamp for yeah, Time Life Books. Yeah. So how did how did this make you feel? And how did the appearance of this piece change the story that you wanted to tell about Duchamp? Well, of
1: course, it changes it completely. As, uh, uh, as Jasper Johns has said, it's the... It's almost the antithesis of everything else he'd ever done. It's a work that can be seen by only one person at a time through those tiny peepholes. It's, uh, it's eroticism, which was always an important aspect of Duchamp's work. In fact, he once said the only ism he believed in was eroticism. <laughs> um, but his eroticism is blatant, it's, it's close to pornographic. Mm-hmm and uh, th- uh, the landscape background is hyper-realistic. All these things that had not appeared in any way in his work, he just turned everything up, upside down. And that just, too, seemed marvelously Duchampian champion, mm-hmm. to, to change the signals, to change the game at the end, to turn everything upside down, and say, well, it could be this way, too. <laughs>
0: uh- You've already alluded to the fact that one of the things you did in order to craft your account of Duchamp's career was to interview the artist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you interviewed him on several occasions. I'm curious whether he ever provided any feedback for you on the writing you did, whether on your profile for The New Yorker or whether for the 1966 book for Time Life.
1: Absolutely none. Mm -hmm. In fact, Teenie, his wife... Told me after, after he died, she, uh, she said, "You know, uh, Marcel never read your profile." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he said, "Oh, I like it very much. It's fine." Uh-huh. But, but <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe Tini was was joking mm. too, because Tini was a little mischievous herself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, but she said he never read it. <laughs>
0: Did did you find in the course of of interviewing Duchamp that there were moments um, or episodes in his own career that he tended to dwell on that might have given you a sense of guidance of what the artist himself thought ought to be said about him in a biography or biographical sketch such as the ones you were preparing?
1: That's an interesting question. He and um, thinking about you know he. He was least informative about the things that were that i've i i feel mm-hmm. and a lot of people feel are the most important moments in 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 his life the um, um uh, 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 first of all the rejection of the new descending a staircase by the jury of the uh, of the of the- Ind- independence salon in in paris um uh, uh, has been written about a lot, and it's been written about as though this was a great trauma that mm-hmm. that, that Duchamp was so hurt and so shocked uh, that his his work, which he the most important thing he'd done to date, was rejected, and for such absurd reasons, it was it was rejected because of the title. Uh, a delegation of the leading Cubists, including his two brothers, came to him and said. If he would only change the title, it would be maybe acceptable. The title was painted on the bottom of the picture no descending a staircase and um and and this has often uh, been reviewed as uh, as a trauma. I suspect it was something else uh, uh, well, in the first place, he had been working his way out of cubism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he'd put himself through this crash course in, in modern art. He began as a painter of Impressionist landscapes and went through post-Impressionism and Fauvism and then into Cubism. Uh, 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 this was a, a Cubist painting. But he was, he was already at that time working himself out of Cubism and into something completely different, something completely his own. And I think, in a way, that this helped him. That this freed him. You see, there was all this infighting between the two groups of Cubists, uh, the picasso brock group, and the and the and the Puto Cubists, who mm-hmm. were included his brothers, his two older brothers. Uh, it was a way out of all of that, mm-hmm. of that sort of of of. of, um, of a fanatical defending of theories. Mm-hmm. It also it also was a way out of his extremely close relationship with his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, he grew up in a large family with six children, a father who was very much involved in the lives of all his children, four of whom became artists. His two older brothers were both artists, recognized as important a uh, uh, cubist. And Duchamp himself uh, felt, he told me that, uh, that the younger of the two older brothers, mm. who had uh, taken the name Raymond Duchamp-Villon, uh, was, uh, uh, was absolutely the, uh, uh, the most important, important sculptor since Brancusi. He was in awe of, uh, of of both the older brothers, particularly of Raymond. And I think it was it was it was a bit of an obstruction in in his life, having th- those two who had already established themselves in Paris. Uh, he had to sort of break away from that too, and this. Offered the opportunities, mm-hmm. so he broke out of this n- narrow, confining environment, and it was no coincidence, I think, that uh, that very soon afterwards he went off to Munich mm-hmm. by himself. It was the first; it was the first time he'd been entirely alone in a in a different country, and uh, and the almost one year that he spent in Munich w- was. Uh, crucial, formative period f- for him. It, you know, it, a, 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 an astonishing amount of of, of very original work c- came out of that time. He did the um, um, uh, the, the drawings and and uh, and paintings f- uh, f- uh, for the passage from the Virgin to the Bride and the Bride, which I think we mm-hmm. we, we have there. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and immediately after that, he began thinking and making notes and drawings for the work that would occupy him for the next 10 years, which we know as the large glass. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't think he could have done that if he had, had continued uh, uh, to live in Paris. And, and and to have this close association with his, his his brothers. I think it would have been much more difficult anyway. But anyway, he would never, he never talked about that to me at all. Mm. And it's still, it's, it, it's fascinating that this this period in Munich is the period we know least about in Duchamp's life. We really don't know what was going on in his life then. The, you know, there are strange sort of emanations. We know that he, he was also in, in, involved in a very passionate love affair with the wife of his best friend. It was Gabrielle Buffet Uh It was it was most I guess a mostly platonic love affair, but 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 they had a an extremely romantic meeting in a train station in in Germany. She was was coming from one place, and he went to the station where her train was to be held over, and they talked in the station all night. And, and this was all happening in the, this one period, but we really don't know anything about it. And nothing has really ever come to light, and Duchamp certainly never talked about it. Fascinating. So he was, you know, was curious. He would, he would talk about things, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go into it deeply.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some of the other moments in Duchamp's career that you consider to be formative?
1: was certainly his coming to New York mm-hmm. in 1915. This mm-hmm. was another escape, in a way. I mean, he, um, he had been, uh, had been um, uh, ruled out of, of, uh, for the military draft. He had a heart ailment that made him ineligible for the draft. It was very uncomfortable to be a young man in Paris. Women would spit on you in the street and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so he came to America and uh, uh, to New York, rather uh, and he he wrote to somebody at the time, "I do not leave Paris, I go to new york, and he really meant that i mean he it was a very important change for him. He loved New York mm-hmm. it was a wonderful time for him he 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 had many uh, well he had a a number of close friends there. He, he loved the atmosphere. He loved the openness. Mm-hmm. He loved the freedom. He said, you know, in France, every painter is, feels like the grandson of Poussin. The weight of that tradition is so heavy that you can never escape it. He, he said, but, but in America, you don't care about Shakespeare. It's not, a, it's not weighing on you. He just he felt he had much more freedom to develop his own uh, original thinking.
0: And picking, picking up on that observation, as you know well, Duchamp actually made the decision, not in 1915, but 40 years later in 1955, um, to take American citizenship. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Duchamp um, can be considered an American artist?
1: Absolutely not
0: mm-hmm.
1: he remained absolutely totally quintessentially French mm-hmm. all his life he had mm-hmm. he had qualities of mind he said he had he had a Cartesian mind mm-hmm. that he could never he could never get around and um, uh, but uh, but like uh, uh, and but like many French. Artists and intellectuals he rejected outright large chunks of French culture. Mm. Uh, he was disgusted with, with with a great deal of the of the infighting in the paris art world with the, with, with the overabundance of theories he, he felt uh, he always felt more at home in america uh, and and after that first visit here he, he came. Quite often, all through the twenties, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not quite so much in the thirties. But then, in in nineteen forty-one, when the Germans o- overran France, he um, he uh, spent about a year um, uh, getting his uh, the, uh, the artwork that he had been involved with, which was uh, his Bois en Valise. It was the a suitcase with miniature reproductions of all his most important work uh, done in an edition. And so he'd had all these prints and, and multiples uh, that had been done at, at, at various uh, lithography sh- uh, shops around Paris. And he, w- he, w- he was g- gathering them all together and making frequent trips to the south of France. Um, to, to the unoccupied zone, and 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 finally, when he got them all out, he he packed them up and and came came to America. And I think he just recognized at that point that mm-hmm. this was where he 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 felt more at home mm-hmm. and where he wanted to live.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he did uh, he did become a citizen in fifty five. He lived here. Uh, he also had a small pied-à-terre in Paris, and he spent his summers in Spain. Uh, b- but he basically lived here, and uh, and, uh, and in, in many respects was part of the American art establishment, mm-hmm. more and more so, as mm-hmm. he grew older. But he never became an American artist.
0: Right, one of the, the comments that I think I, I found in an interview, the transcript of an inter- interview you conducted with Duchamp, is he felt that he had, as he put it, more real friends here in America than he had in France. Yeah. And I wondered if we could use that as a jumping off point to speak about some of the relationships that were most important for Duchamp.
1: Uh, yes, he did. He, he he did have more friends here in the mm-hmm. end than he, he, he had in Paris. In Paris, he was sort of a loner. Here, he he um, he, he immediately became a a very uh, integral part of a lively circle of mm-hmm. artists, uh, all of who met uh, f- almost every evening at the apartment of the collector and poet Walter Ahrensberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Arensberg, of course, eventually became his his main collector, and the, uh, and uh, gave his collection of Duchamp to the Philadelphia Museum, which is why that's the best place in the world to see his work. Uh, but those evenings at the Ahrensbergs were um, were uh, apparently a lot of fun for everybody, and. Um, Uh, 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 So Walter Ahrensberg was one very close friend, also Henri-Pierre Rocher, Mm -hmm. who was uh, another Frenchman, (laughs) translated to New York, uh, who who would later go on uh, to write the novel of uh, uh, Jules et Jim, from which the Truffaut movie was made. Mm Uh, um, he and Duchamp uh, cast uh, sort of uh, uh, a French aura over the New York art Mm -hmm. scene. And uh, they shared a few of the same girlfriends. There are quite a few girlfriends. Uh, uh, And and, and, um, uh, uh, some of them more serious than others. Beatrice Wood was a young a young American from a, uh, a well-to-do New York family who had, had um, acted in, in French, in French plays. And, 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 she, and she met Duchamp when they both went to call on Edgar Varez, who was in the hospital with a broken leg. Uh, they became extremely close friends when Beatrice fell madly in love with him. Uh, he he considered her too um, too much uh, of a, a virgin to uh, c- to carry things any further, but H. P. Rocher did not, and um, <laughs> so she had her heart broken by Rocher, and she remained in love with Duchamp for the rest mm-hmm. of her life. There's a wonderful picture of them on at Coney Island, that's uh, uh, with Pacabia in the background.
0: And, and if I'm not mistaken, Pacabia was there because Roche had just broken up yes. with Beatrice Wood.
1: that's right, that's right. So, um, uh, but, but who else? Well, there was, there was, um, uh, uh, not many of the American artists uh, became too friendly with Duchamp, mm-hmm. but um, Man Ray was the great exception. Man mm-hmm. Ray uh, idolized Duchamp and sort of modeled his life on him Uh, Man Ray was was one of the people I tried to talk with. I I, I was never able to talk with Ahrensberg as he he, he had died. Mm -hmm. I couldn't talk to Picabia. I uh, was not able to talk to Rocher. I did talk to Man Man Ray, but he brushed me off. He said, it's all in my book, just read my book. (laughs) Like many artists, no matter how much he admired another artist, he didn't really want to talk about him for publication. Um, uh, but um, uh, uh, the Stuttheimer sisters, mm-hmm. we have, uh, uh, we're, were two eccentric maiden ladies. There were three, there were three sisters. Uh, lived in New York, had, had some money, and, and um, uh, uh, Florine was a painter herself, whose work is, used to be considered a joke and is, is now considered quite important uh uh the uh, uh, the middle one uh uh, uh Eddie fell in love with Duchamp and um and and wrote about him in a in a romantic sort of um uh f- a piece of fiction uh, a, a whole a whole book or books could be done on Dushan's re- relationships <laughs> with women but the, which were which were probably. More, um, more varied than his relationships with men.
0: <clears throat> and of course, he he ultimately ends up settling down and finding domestic bliss. Yes. So it seems with yes. with his wife, Teeny Duchamp. Yeah, but
1: uh, uh, this was after two
0: mm-hmm. two very
1: long relationships in in Paris when he had gone back to Paris in the twenties, and he had a long. Uh, and very deep relationship with an American woman named Mary Reynolds, who had act, who actually uh, who stayed in Paris and worked for the French Resistance, had a very exciting mm. escape from Paris over mm. the Pyrenees. Uh, uh, they were uh, that their relationship was in some ways like a marriage, but except Duchamp never wanted it to seem like it was, and he, he maintained his own. Independence, his own living quarters. And I think it was it was a tremendous a, a disappointment uh, to Mary, but but um, uh, but she, but she stuck with it. And mm-hmm. and um, at the end, when she was dying of cancer in Paris, he he came back from New York and stayed with her. And. Um, and 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 was with her when she died, but then in New York in the forties, he, he he fell very much in love with the wife of the Brazilian ambassador, Maria Martins, which was a rather difficult feat because her husband her husband was the dean of the diplomatic corps in Washington and. Mm-hmm. And their house was a, was the site of the most important diplomatic soirees and, and and dinner parties. But but she was a sculptor. Uh, she would come to New York. She had a studio in New York. And she, and she and Duchamp fell very much in love. And and the letters between them, which have survived. Uh, which is a miracle, because most of mm-hmm. Duchamp's letters did not survive, mm-hmm. and he didn't write that many. But, but uh, the degree of his, his feeling for her is quite is, is quite amazing. And of course, it was an impossible relationship uh, because she had children and she wouldn't never have considered a divorce. Uh, uh, but she, uh, she became the model. Mm. For the first version of Etant Doné*, it was modeled on her body, and then, uh, and then, uh, some years later, I couldn't talk to her, but uh, uh, but, uh, but I did talk to one of her daughters,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who was extremely enlightening. Her daughter uh, was 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 sort of in love with. in love with her mother too. She said she was the most fascinating woman I've ever known. Uh, She would meet somebody and say to him, tell me who your enemies are so I can help you hate them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, And I think it was was difficult for Tini Duchamp when uh, Marcel married her to to uh, uh, to realize that this had, had been the great mm. passionate love of his life but Tini was in a way the ideal woman for Duchamp. she had been married to uh, the dealer paul Matisse uh, pierre Matisse who was the uh, the son of the painter and uh, uh, and they had 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 three children and a, quite a long marriage and uh, then Pierre ditched her for a younger lady and she had known Duchamp for quite a while before that. Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, they came together, I, I guess, about a year afterwards mm-hmm. and, and really uh, they were just perfect for each other. Mm-hmm. She, was a, she, she was as interesting in her way as Duchamp. She was highly mm-hmm. intelligent, very original Origi- very original mind, uh, s- great sense of humor, d- deeply practical. She knew how things should run. She knew how to keep a lovely house and provide delicious meals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and and they were extraordinarily happy together for, for the last, I guess, about twenty years of, of his life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting with with Teeny's. Um relationship to Henri Matisse coming together with Marcel Duchamp. Mm-hmm. In a sense, we have two of the major artistic personalities yes. of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And then the third, perhaps the the elephant in the room, if you will, of course, is Pablo Picasso. Mm-hmm. And prior to our formal interview, we were talking a little bit about Picasso. And I wondered if we could continue our conversation about his relationship or lack thereof with Marcel Duchamp, and how these two figures, Picasso and Duchamp, serve as um, poles of the sort for the past century.
1: It's very curious. I don't think they ever met. Uh, Picasso was uh, was about eight years older, and uh, they were, of course, in Paris at the same time, before the the First World War. Uh, uh, Duchamp's older brothers... uh, uh, did meet Picasso. There's a, there's an anecdote in John Richardson's book about um, uh, uh, once in, the, in Picasso's early years in Paris when he was he was extremely poor, and he was moving from a studio. Uh, I guess I think it was a studio in in, in Montmartre to, to, um, to a studio in Montparnasse, or maybe it was the other way around. And he had all of his belongings in a big cart, a push cart. And he passed the two older Duchamp brothers, Jacques Villon and Raymond Duchamp Villon, and they waved at him, and Picasso felt that they were laughing at him because it was very well known that this was how you skipped out on the rent. You piled all your (laughs) things in a wagon and moved out. And and Picasso felt that they assumed that he was skipping out on the rent, which Mm -hmm. actually, surprisingly enough, he wasn't. He paid the rent. He just had a, a better studio to go to. And so, he, according to Richardson, he held it against them. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as I can see, and Richardson hasn't, hasn't found any evidence either, uh, he, he and Duchamp never met. I think at one point, um, Picasso w- was said to have said, Duchamp was wrong. And from his point of view, of course, that's true, because Picasso was the monarch of retinal painting and uh, Duchamp was the great opponent of retinal Mm -hmm. painting. Uh, Duchamp was the one who said that uh, that, that ever since Impressionism, art has been something primarily or exclusively for the eye and he wanted to return it to the service of the mind. And this is what he spent a lot of his life doing. Mm
0: And that that leads me to um, an interesting paradox and I guess maybe this, this is the, the question with which I'd like to conclude the formal part of our interview before opening it up for a few questions from the audience. But to my mind, given the um, extent of Duchamp's profound influence in today's art world, it's, in, it's an interesting paradox, I think, that Picasso should perhaps be the better-known name to the American public. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered if, um, in conclusion, you might be able to say um, a few words about the influence that Duchamp has exercised on artists such as Andy Warhol, Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, Douglas Gordon, who paradoxically may Mm -hmm. be better well-known to the American public, and perhaps in speaking about his influence on them, maybe offer a thought, if you could about why Duchamp continues to be a little bit in the shadows.
1: Yeah, his influence, of course, his influence, uh, it was was so wide and so deep that I think uh, for many, many artists it wasn't necessary to know who who had caused the changes, that uh, they were... uh, Involved with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, he he changed art. He changed it from from f- 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 uh, from something it had been to to, uh, to something it is now, which is largely at the service of the mind. It's mm-hmm. largely conceptual art that we're dealing with now, and uh, uh, that comes from Dusha. But uh, a lot of artists that that that, that I've uh, I've talked with. Uh, we're not really very aware of what Duchamp had done. You know, it's not easy to see the work. It, a lot of it is in Philadelphia, but it, there's very little of it. He didn't do so much work, and it's hard to see it. And his his writings, so-called, are are, are somewhat hermetic and not and not easily easily come upon either. And, and so a lot of artists have been enormously influenced by Duchamp without knowing it's mm-hmm. Duchamp who's influenced them. It's, mm-hmm. it's this profound change that he brought about in the nature and the purpose of art uh, that, that, that they're responding to. Uh, for example, Rauschenberg and Johns, who are certainly always thought of as coming out of Duchamp, uh, didn't really know the work at all until the, uh, the '60s, when mm-hmm. they uh, they made a trip down to Philadelphia and sp- and spent a day in the Aronsberg collection looking at it, uh, they were both enormously comforted and delighted by it. But in the sense of that, it confirmed the direction they
2: mm-hmm. each
1: had already uh, had been following mm-hmm. for quite some time. Uh, uh, it, it's uh, the same I find with Bruce Nauman. Mm-hmm. Who, who said, "Of course, you couldn't escape the influence of Duchamp in the 60s and the 70s." But to him, it came it came second hand. He got it largely through his interest in Man Ray and the composer John Cage. Uh, with Warhol, I don't really know. I mean, I'm sure there are people here who who, who could tell us. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, Warhol never. Uh, had a meeting with Duchamp, and um, I know that Duchamp admired his work enormously. He was very interested in Warhol's work. Uh, Whether uh, whether Warhol was specifically aware of of Duchamp, I'm just not sure, Mm -hmm. but if you do an exact replica, if you make an exact replica of a Brillo box, something that is indistinguishable from the real commercial brillo box in a supermarket what you're doing is is asking asking the viewer to think about things to right. think about what art is or is not what art does or doesn't do and this of course comes right out of Duchamp.
0: Absolutely Well thank you so much for your observations and perhaps that provides the note on which we can open the conversation for a few minutes to questions from the audience. Are there questions? And and may may I ask you to use one of our microphones? Would you be comfortable? Okay, good for you. Excellent.
1: I'm sorry. I. I I'm going to try to. Hearing. Yeah, I'm going to
0: try to paraphrase that, and I'm not sure if I caught the whole thing myself. But you were interested in Mr. Tompkins' thoughts on the clouds. The um, pistons the, in the clouds. Sorry, the the. Pistons. Oh, the pistons. The, 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 the um. Your thoughts on the uh, on the uh, pistons in the um, the bride's garment in the large glass.
1: Um. Uh, the
0: draft pistons
1: uh, the draft pistons well um,
0: we can let's look at you. them and so is this is this you what have, you're th- yep yeah, that just wanted to Green be square. right
1: I will, on the right you I mean <laughs>
0: I know. I know that you're very knowledgeable about Duchamp. Um, what what provokes your curiosity about them? i never
2: figured
0: it out. So. <laughs> no.
1: Well. It's part of a very complicated mechanism to, uh, to, uh, to explain to all of us how sex works. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I can't explain it.
0: Okay. <laughs> no, I, I Perhaps there is somebody else in the audience who'd like to to speak to that. Jim, did you have a thought you wanted to share on the draft pistons? I think I'll leave it where Mr. Tompkins was. Wonderful. <laughs> we'll, 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 leave it, we'll leave it shrouded in, in mystery for the time being, which is mm-hmm. <laughs> where many of... Uh, Many uh, of, of Duchamp's uh, works take us. Mm-hmm. I think there were a few other questions. Uh-huh. I, I just finished reading your wonderful
1: biography. Uh, c- uh, could you talk in the, in the microphone? Sure.
2: I just finished reading your wonderful biography and enjoyed it so much. And I wondered, uh, in speaking with Duchamp, how his English was. And did he have a deep French accent?
1: Uh, his english was was perfect he well, he spoke with a, a delightful french accent but but um his english i would say he was completely bilingual he um uh, uh you know, when he first he first arrived here he spoke hardly any any english at all but he he got he he earned his living for quite a few years by teaching french and of course when you teach a language you learn you learn the other language probably more than your, than your students learn the language you're teaching. Okay, thank you. you. Carolyn? Uh, I Mike. have a question. You said there are many anecdotes uh, about Duchamp. What are your two favorites? My two favorites? Yes. Uh, well, you know. Uh, uh, this was something I was thinking about. Can we, we have them on the board, The, the, uh, the, uh, the Bride and the passage of the, from the Virgin to the Bride. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the two paintings he did when he was living in Munich, I, I, I've sometimes th- I thought, you know, there are artists and, and critics who considered that Duchamp was the enemy, that he was the evil genius who destroyed art. And uh, it sometimes occurs to me that, that that eventually there'll be a counter-revolution and uh, it'll be followed by the triumphal return of retinal painting. And when that happens, uh, others, uh, the, the great supporters of retinal painting are going to rediscover that Duchamp painted that two of what I think are the greatest paintings, oil paintings on canvas, of the 20th century. And what is... is is. This is, is called Bride, and the other is called The Passage from the Virgin to the Bride. Uh, one is in uh, the Museum of Modern Art, mm-hmm. and the other is in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think anybody who oh. spends time in, in front of either one of those, sort of really looking at it, is going to be enthralled. Uh, you know, the quality of the painting... Uh, the, uh, the subtlety, the elusiveness and the ev- evocative aspects of these strange shapes somewhere between hu- a human anatomy and machine have a tremendous spellbinding uh, sort of power. And, and, and this is another one of the paradoxes of Dushanga. The great enemy of retinal art painted these two pictures. But I love them both. Michael.
2: So very quickly after you met Duchamp, you kind of zeroed in on those artists whose sort of ideas resonated with his. Um, And that would be Merce Cunningham, John Cage, Jasper Johns, and Rauschenberg. And I'm I'm wondering if you knew any of them prior to your Duchamp meeting. And also, um, you talked about John's and Rauschenberg. I wonder if you, if you talked to Cage and Cunningham about Duchamp. Uh,
1: could you elucidate that? Then? I'm oh, right yes. A story Ab-
0: Absolutely. M- Michael asked a really interesting question, which is about your relationship with artists who are sympathetic to Duchamp, mm. like Rauschenberg's John's. And I think Michael was particularly curious um, to hear whether you had spoken specifically with John Cage and Merce Cunningham about Marcel Duchamp.
1: Uh, uh, yes, of course I did. They were people I talked with a good deal and um, uh, John Cage, of course was for for many artists and many other people the primary um, the primary conduit for the rediscovery of Duchamp in this country. He was deeply influenced by him, and he really did know uh, uh, as much about Duchamp as he could possibly find out, he knew the work he had read uh, uh, the um, uh, the incidental writings of Duchamp uh, and he hadn 't met him until the sixties but he was fast, utterly fascinated by Duchamp and his own uh, his own music with, uh, using chance chance methodology was directly influenced by duchamp uh, he had Thought more about Duchamp than anybody else, and in his lectures at the New School and his, his private, he was a great talker, and he had a huge influence on a whole generation of artists. Some of whom studied with him at the New School, and others like Rauschenberg and Johns, whom he befriended. Uh, he, uh, you know, he just—he he was almost too much in awe of Marcel. He said that. That that for years, he resisted meeting him because he just didn't want to impose himself. He admired him so much he didn't want to impose himself. Uh, but then, uh, but finally in, in the sixties he did he, he did meet him and he screwed up his courage and asked Marcel if he would teach him to play chess. Uh, and and Marcel said, "Do you know the moves?" And he said, "Yes." And he, and he said, "Well, all right, uh, come over to the house." And John uh, came over to Marcel and apartment on 12th Street and took chess lessons, but not from Marcel. He took them from Teeny. There was an excellent chess player himself, <laughs> and Marcel would occasionally look over their shoulder and make a sort of disparaging sound. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but 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 uh, but these. Uh, turned into regular weekly meetings, and they would have dinner, and and he got to know him quite well, and um, uh, and he, he you know he, he felt that the Duchamp lived up to every uh, to every sort of of admiring uh, 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 a thought he'd ever had about him. He was he, he he was to the end of his life he thought that the Duchamp was the most intelligent, the most interesting, the most original uh, man who was, he'd ever met. And it was largely through Cage that um, that Rauschenberg and Johns uh, actually became interested in Duchamp. It was because of, of hearing about, uh, um, about Duchamp from Cage that they went down to, to Philadelphia that time and, and it was, um, you know, there was, there was a direct line from Cage through Rosenberg and Johns and, and then th- through all of the younger artists who were influenced by Rosenberg and Johns.
2: But You see, you, you say that, but you're the one who established that line. I mean, that was what was so brilliant about your writings was that mm-hmm. out of all the artists who were, all the, the, the writers and musicians who were interested in Duchamp, you really honed in on the key figures, so I applaud you.
1: Yeah, well, it was partly luck and partly um, that one led to another, right. that, um, uh, that, that, that doing Rauschenberg sort of, 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 of led to John Cage and, and then John... Cage. Well, I'd already been interested in Duchamp before, but after doing John Cage, then I knew I had to do Duchamp, so it was a, a natural progression.
0: Well I think perhaps that is a, a wonderful note on which to end. And I, I do want to echo actually Michael Taylor's observation and to thank you, Calvin Tompkins, for being another conduit for delivering Duchamp, the man and the artist, to present the present generation. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with us this evening.
1: Oh thank you.